So how have you guys been liking this series, this, this wilderness series? We've been going through it for a couple weeks now. We've been, yeah, we've been getting some awesome responses, and I personally have been doing some awesome stuff in me as well. And let me just use this time, again, as, as an encouragement. If you're not connected in a group and you, your schedule in any way provides that you can do that midweek type of thing, um, let me invite you to get involved with our groups because they've, they've been so good um, the past few weeks uh, through this series. They've been really tremendous and just... Um, you're missing out. So uh, you can get in touch with myself or Pastor Josh. The email's on the River Guide or just come up to us afterwards and we'll, we'll give you a little bit more information on that. Um, so for the past couple of weeks, we've been walking through the wilderness series at Charles River Church and, and we've talked a lot about the what's of the wilderness. The, I love what Pastor Josh called them last, last Sunday, the, the scorpions in the wilderness, those things that come. Um, when, and it, the wilderness of our soul, that, that desperation, that, that anxiety, the depression that we can feel. Um, you know, a lot of times we get painted as, you know, uh, God is with us, so everything is awesome and we don't have anything to worry about. But, but the fact of the matter is we know that, that there are tough times. And if you read your Bible, I mean, just open it up to anywhere and it's almost guaranteed that you're going to find some sort of suffering, or some sort of something in there. Um, but yeah, it's been really great. But this morning, what I'd like to do is sort of open up not so much the what's of the wilderness. We, we've covered that, and we will continue to cover that. But, but this morning, I want, to talk, I want to talk about every two-year-old's favorite question. Why? Right, parents? Yeah. So your kid is born, and they start growing up, and, and you know, they start babbling, and they get you know, a, a word here and there, and then they learn those two fateful words that just ruin everything for the rest of your life. And those words are no and Why? And why is a lot of times worse than no, because why oftentimes doesn't make any kind of sense. So it's like, you're, 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 all right, buddy, it's time to go brush your teeth, and it's why. Uh, well, because uh, we allow you to eat those sugary things that, don't d- judge me, okay, but we allow you guys to eat those sugary things that make you happy, but if you don't brush that off your teeth, your teeth will rot and fall out of your head. Well, why? Uh, because that's what, how sugar reacts with the teeth. It's not good. It rots. and it is. Why? Well, I, I didn't realize I was going to need like a, a, a human anatomy class in order to raise my kids. I didn't realize that I was going to need like a degree in, in science so that I can explain these questions. So, so ultimately, it just comes down to because I'm your dad and I said so and I love you, so do it. Okay? So why? The why of the wilderness. And God, God so, so think about, we talked about Moses last week. And, and Moses leads the Israelites out of, out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. And then God puts them in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? It's not arbitrary. And Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, he spends 40 days in the desert. Why? It's not arbitrary. There are reasons. And, and, and Paul, who we're going to be talking about this morning, he gets, he, he gets converted and, and goes into the wilderness of Arabia. Why? Again, it's not arbitrary. There are reasons. There are things that God has for us in the wilderness. So we, we as people, we can endure a lot of what? If our why, if we can understand the why, if the why is strong enough, right? So think about, I can think of literally no other circumstance in which any human being would, would be willing to undergo like the, the transformation and the, the, the changes that come along with pregnancy. I can think of no other reason that any human being, being would sign up to, to to be uncomfortable for nine months, to get sick, for, you know, to, to have to use the bathroom constantly. I can think of no other reason other than the fact that at the end of that is your baby, that your baby needs you to do that 
so, so you joyfully endure it, right? If, if we have a strong enough why, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that if at the end, the end result was a rattlesnake, right? I don't think so, right? So, so we, can, we can endure so much if we know why we're enduring it. And ultimately, we do know as Christians that God has given us his Holy Spirit to do it in us, for us. But we have to fight for it. So the goal this morning is to show you that, that these wilderness experiences can actually be gifts from a good father who is leading us and training us to become more and more and more like him. So, so the wilderness, Pastor Josh has mentioned, it, it's God's workshop. It's where God chips away at you. It's where God tears you apart so he can put you back together. And, and I loved what he said, that, that it's, it's not so often we try to get out of the wilderness. We want comfort and we want ease, so we try to get away from the wilderness, try to get out of the wilderness, but it's not necessarily as important as what we can get out of the wilderness, right? So that's the goal for this morning. That's the goal for this morning. So, so it's, it's that God... So the, the point for this morning, the main, the main point that I want you to walk out of this building with this morning is, is that the wilderness is where God turns your head knowledge into your heart knowledge. It's that where God turns the things that you know about Him into the things that you know about Him in your guts and, and are able to change accordingly. Right? So, so again... With the pregnancy example, we, my wife and I, we've gone through pregnancy twice now, okay? So, so and I know a lot about it. I, I, I can understand a lot of the science behind it. You have these two cells, and they get together, and, and all of a sudden, there's one brand new cell, this new, brand new, tiny little life, this brand new strand of DNA that has never existed before, completely unique, and will never, ever exist again. And then that, that one cell grows and grows and grows and I understand that it, it feeds off of the mother, and it, 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 the mother like, is willing to endure and is willing to, to go through. So I know that if, when my wife was pregnant, I know that if I was to open up a thing of sour cream in the kitchen, she in the living would, would, would have to run to the bathroom to throw up. I don't, so, so I know a lot about pregnancy, but she understands it in a way that I never can, right? Because I've never been pregnant, thank God. <laughs> Hallelujah. Okay. But she understands it in a way that, that I never can. And she understands it in a way with no training. She understands it in a way that, that the greatest OBGYN in the history of the world, male OBGYN, who has studied the subject for decades, she understands it in a way that he can never understand it. She knows it in her heart what it's like to be pregnant. While he may know every single detailed word about what this is and what this is and what this is, he can never know what it's truly like to be pregnant. And that's, that's the goal for this morning, is that to, to prove to you guys that God oftentimes will put us in the wilderness to take what we know about him and turn it into things that we know about him, that we are moved to change. So, so for example, I, since my conversion, since the time that I became a Christian, roughly 20 years of age, since that time, I believed that God was faithful. The Bible says God is faithful. I believed that God was faithful. I had some experience of God's faithfulness. But it really wasn't until my wife and I went down to become a, a one-income family that, that we truly learned what God's faithfulness really is. 
to, to be struggling and not knowing necessarily how we're going to pay for all sorts of stuff, that God proved himself again and again and again, and we learned in our guts that God is faithful. It's not just words on a page anymore, though these words are power, though these words are written by the Holy Spirit himself, he in love guides us through wilderness so that we may get those words into our souls, right? So God doesn't want us to just have this head knowledge about him. He doesn't want us to be walking around like those little bobblehead things with giant heads and tiny bodies. He wants us to know him fully and in knowing him, love him more deeply so that we may change and become more and more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. In order to talk about that this morning, we're going to talk about three theological concepts And the goal is not that you know these words necessarily, but it's very, very helpful tools. Theology is a beautiful way to know more truth about God so that we can be more comforted. So I'm not going to give you a test at the end of the sermon to to see if you guys can remember these words, but, but I hope that you will, if you're taking notes, will at least understand the concepts behind them. So first, we're going to talk about justification. Justification is a word that we use a lot, and it's, it's the gospel message. It's what we proclaim week in and week out, that God has sent Jesus in our place, that though we were sinners, though we are sinners, that God has sent Jesus Christ, his son, the second person of the Trinity, to walk in flesh, to fulfill the law completely and perfectly, and to die in our place. So, so we're standing, and imagine if you will, you're standing in the cosmic courtroom of the universe and the judge is up on the bench and he's the most holy, most righteous judge. There is no jury of peers where things can go wrong. This judge knows not only every single action that you've done, he knows every thought that you've ever had and he knows every motivation behind every thought and every action that you've ever had. There is no getting this wrong and you know that you are in big trouble you know that you are in big trouble. You are standing there with a murder weapon in your hand and blood spattered all over your shirt and the holy judge of the universe is standing right there and you know that you're in big trouble. And he looks down upon you and he says, you are guilty and you deserve death. And then in love, he gets up from the bench and he walks down and he puts his arm around you and he says, I have paid your penalty. I have taken the penalty away. And he takes your rap sheet, he takes all the papers that are running out the door, and he takes his rubber stamp, and he stamps on that innocent. And not only innocent, righteous, holy. So you are positionally, you are proclaimed, you are declared by the judge of the universe, you are declared holy, declared righteous. That there is, though you yet sin, and though you yet have desire to sin, You are clean in his eyes because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. That's justification. That's the message that we proclaim without ceasing to anybody who will listen. That's the gospel. Okay, and that's a once instantaneous transaction that occurs upon your repentance and belief that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a one-time deal, and then it lasts forever. And then, so that's justification. Now, glorification, this happens when you die. 
and there's nothing better that can happen to you. <laughs> and that's a, that's a weird thing to say, but, but glorification is, is another instantaneous action in which upon your death, God removes completely your sin nature, completely removes any desire that you have to sin so that you can then walk in newness and fullness of life the way that you were designed to work in, in the first place. Glorification. It's a one-time, instantaneous thing. When you die, you are made completely brand new. You are completely saved from all of your sin and from even your desire to sin so that your desires are completely lined up with his desires. That's freedom. And that's glorification. Now between justification here and glorification here, there's a long process called your life. And that's, we're going to talk about sanctification. The third concept. And that's the process in which God, God builds us from one degree of glory to the next, making us more and more and more and more like Jesus. So we know that, that from the moment that we were saved, we, we didn't look anything like Jesus. God came to us at our worst, when we were at our worst, and he saved us. Between the time when you understand that, between the time when you repent and you believe, onward to your death, you should be becoming more and more and more and more like your Savior. More and more and more like the way that God had initially created you to work. Right? That's sanctification. And that takes a long time. And we stink at waiting. Especially in our context. I mean, the microwave takes way too long. And, and you want to watch something on TV, you don't have to wait. You don't have to have commercials. You get Netflix. If it's not on Netflix, you have Hulu. If it's not on Hulu, you have Amazon. If it's not on Amazon, there are all sorts of things that you can watch on YouTube. And so we don't have to wait for anything. We, we know what we want, and we want it yesterday. And we want it for free. We don't want to pay. We don't want to have to work for it. And we, want, we know what we want, and we want it now. I'm not going to do the, the Pastor Josh thing and start jumping into songs, but 90 songs, but I, I totally could right there. Um, so in order, to talk about, in order to talk about this process of sanctification, we're going, to look at, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul this morning. And the primary text for this morning is going to be 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. And before we get there, while you're flipping there, and if you don't have a Bible, please, uh, there, are, there are white and blue Bibles all around. Um, please uh, grab one of those. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that home with you. Um, we, would, we would love for you to have that. That's our gift for you. Unless it would be more exciting for you to steal it, then whatever you do, don't take those, wink. Um, so, so we're going to look at the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, we first meet in Acts chapter 7. And his name is not Paul, his name is Saul. Saul of Tarsus, and he's a Pharisee. He's, he's, a, he's a religious elite in Israel. He is one of the, 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 the most religious. He's, he's like one of the priests. He's, he's, he's a Pharisee. And he's not just a Pharisee. He's like a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's like a big kahuna Pharisee guy. He's rising up among the ranks. And so we first, we're first introduced to Saul in Acts chapter 7 in which, in which you have this guy Stephen who was one of the first deacons in the church, one of these seven guys that the apostles appointed to, to take after the church, to, to, to to do stuff around the church so that the apostles could, could focus in on prayer and study and proclaiming the gospel. So these men were, were appointed to serve tables and to do you know, the remedial works and, and stuff that, that we need 
I mean, we're, we're a church plant. These drapes don't show up on their own. So this is the type of work that, that Stephen and these seven were doing. And, and Stephen gets himself into some big trouble with these Pharisees by proclaiming Jesus. And in Acts chapter 7, it's this beautiful, beautiful um, story that, that Stephen tells, of, and he recaps the entire history of the covenants, the entire history of Israel, showing how God has pursued faithfully, and Israel has constantly pushed them away and killed the prophets. And he finally gets to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Pharisees have had absolutely enough. And so what they do is they pick up rocks, and they throw them at Stephen until he's dead. And while they're doing that, he's forgiving them, just like his Savior. Just like his Savior. And so, Acts 7 says that as these guys were picking up rocks, before they went to pick up the rocks, they took their cloaks off so they didn't get messy, and they took their cloaks off and they put them at the feet of this guy, Saul. So he's not just, he's not getting his hands dirty with the rocks, but he is sort of overseeing everything. He's, he's sort of the ringleader. And it says that, Paul, that Saul looked upon it approvingly, that Paul, Saul approved of this this persecution of Christ's bride, of Christ's church, right? And so, so what happens? How does this guy go from this to writing most, like a, a t- half of the New Testament, being used by the Holy Spirit to write like half of the New Testament? How does that happen? Well, two chapters later in Acts chapter 9, Paul's on his way or Saul still at this point, is on his way to Damascus. and He's got papers in hand in order to go into buildings, tear out men, women, and children who are Christians, who are our brothers and sisters still throughout time. Our brothers and sisters, this guy has papers to go into their church, tear them out, put them in chains, and drag them back to prison to persecute the church. And he's on his way to Damascus. He's on the road with some friends. They're all going to, with this mission, he's so zealous for the law, he's so zealous for it, And what happens is that Jesus Christ himself shows up in this great light and knocks Paul, Saul, off of his horse. And he says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul thinks or says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Now think of that wilderness of the soul that he was doing what he thought was the right thing. He's so zealous after the law. He's so zealous after God. So he thinks. And yet, in this moment, he is blinded. And, and he is encountered with Jesus Christ himself saying, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And so... For three days, his friends bring him up to Damascus and he's waiting. For three days, he's blind. He's in this desperate wrestling with all kinds of, think of the inner turmoil inside of this man. What is happening? And God sends a man to go and pray over him, at which point his eyes are restored. His vision is restored and he sees and he is justified. He is converted. He is our brother. He is Paul. And he is so zealous that immediately, it says, he goes into the synagogues and he proclaims Christ from the scriptures. He shows how Jesus is actually the Christ. And he gets himself into some hot water immediately with the governor of that city to the point where the Christians find out that that they're about to, they, they want to kidnap and kill Paul now. 
And so they, they find out and they put him in a basket and they lower him out the window in this basket, out the window of the wall of the city, and he escapes into the actual wilderness of Arabia, where Galatians 1 tells us that he was at, in the wilderness is where Jesus Christ himself revealed the fullness of the gospel to him. That, that this man who wrote the, the, the ultimate treatise on what the gospel is, Romans, the book of Romans, this man, that was received to him, by him from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it happened in the wilderness. After all of this inner turmoil and after Jesus Christ finally sets him free. Now the background to this reading that we're going to read this morning is that Paul has now become the world's greatest missionary, the world's greatest church planter in the history of the world. It's Paul, okay? And so he's going around the world, the known world at that time, and he's, he's visiting Greece, and he's going through cities in Greece. And he ends up in Athens in Acts chapter 17, which is, which is we hear a lot about that um, from the planting of our church. But Acts chapter 17 is a beautiful time. But, but the reality is Paul is, is desperate. Because he's come from this church, Thessalonica, and he's desperate. He's, he's anxious about them. Are they still holding fast to what I proclaim to them? Are they still holding fast to that which, which I told them? Are they walking? Are they growing more in holiness? Or is somebody taking them? Are they, are they being led astray? And he's anxious and to the point where he's like, I can't, I can't deal with it anymore. He can't pick up his cell phone and call the pastor there and see how things are going. He can't download the Thessalonican's church app. It doesn't exist. So what he does is he says, hey, Timothy, I trust you. I need you to go 220 miles to the north to Thessalonica, check on this church and see how they're doing. That's, to, that's how much anxiety he had towards these people. It's a righteous anxiety. He wants to know. Yet he does know, ultimately, we know that it is the Lord who would preserve. But he has that responsibility upon himself. So So he sends Timothy, and when Timothy returns with a good report, Paul is so relieved. And it's out of that that he and Silas and Timothy write this book, 1 Thessalonians, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we get to 1 Thessalonians 4 toward the end of the book. And Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so, more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you, know, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. 
So Paul knows these people. He knows the initial writing of this text. He knows the church that he's writing to intimately, and he knows what he proclaimed to them, and he knows what they understand, and he knows that they're growing. But he urges them, continue to do so more and more. Why? Because God is worthy of it, and that's where true freedom is found. So he says, in verse 1, he says, to, to grow more and more. And that the, in verse 3, he, he calls sanctification the will of God for them. And then in, in verse 8, they're called not to impurity, but to holiness. And this applies to all of us who have trusted in Christ, that we're called to holiness, that this grace that we've been given through our justification is not a grace that we are to abuse to do stupid stuff with, but it's a grace that we can then use to free us to love God more and to love our neighbor more. It's a foolish way to use freedom, to, to abuse it, to do things, and to, to have that thought cross your mind, yeah, but I'm forgiven, so who cares? Okay, that's a foolish way to use your freedom. And a good way is to, to, to walk in what God has for you. All right, so God, verse 8, maybe the most comforting verse in there, God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so ultimately, we know that when we repent, when we believe, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and we are able to then walk in newness of life accordingly. And that we are to love each other more and more. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes struggle. It takes endurance. And you don't see fruit right away, which kills me. A lot of times you have to wait, and you have to look back a decade and say, man, that guy was an idiot. <laughs> and I pray that, that 10 years from now, I look back on 32-year-old Kevin Morano and I say, that guy had a lot of growing up to do. Because I, I, my prayer is that God would continue to shape me and mold me and more and more into his image and to reveal to me spots where I'm blind right now that I can, that I can grow in that and kill that and develop more and more into the way that he made me initially so that I may love him better, that I may know him more, that I be, may be more joyful and more free to live for him. So we look back, look back on segments because we don't, we don't see it right away. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you guys something um, that I haven't ever really told a whole lot of people, maybe counted on my hand, and it's, it's the worst thing um, that anybody has ever said about me, said to me. And um, so please uh, be gracious. I know you will. So I was supposed to be a middle school history teacher. I don't know if you guys are aware of that, but, but when I graduated college, I took the tests, and I passed the tests, and I got plugged in as like a long-term substitute teacher in this really great school district down in the area that I, that I went to school um, on the South Shore of Boston. And and got plugged in there, and I was teaching for a year and a half, I taught. And I love history, and I love teaching. And for a year and a half, I developed lesson plans, and I graded, and I, I encouraged students. And one of the students actually chose me, one of the honor students chose me as the teacher who had ever, that, that had influenced him the most, like ever, throughout his education up to that point. And it was just this awesome honor. And, and, and that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I wanted to teach middle school, I wanted to teach history, I loved it, and I was really good at it. And I don't say that pridefully. I say that it was like God had equipped me to do this. It felt like I was in my groove. And so about three-quarters of the, of the way through that school year, 
um, another position opened up. Uh, one of the teachers there on one of the other teams, so we would teach in teams, where, you know, every, you know, the common science teacher and a math teacher and an English teacher and a history teacher, so that, that's the team. And one of the other teams, uh, the, their history teacher, same grade, eighth grade, their history teacher got a job promotion and, and took a position as a principal in another school district starting the next year. So I was a shoo-in to be there full time. I was like, this is it. I put my resume in and I went on the interviews. And, and so this is happening in the summer between school years. And I went on the interviews and, and got down to the top three. And I'm in, on the interviews with, with my friends. Like these are people that I had known. It's the, you know, I, I, had, I had been working with them for a year and a half. They were interviewing me, but it was like, almost felt like a formality to me. And I didn't get the job. I didn't get that, that slam dunk job that I was like, what in the world just happened? God, that was my job. You didn't give it to me. What's up? And then I, I, I was forced to take another job that, that didn't require a college education, where I was working with my hands that for a very long time, to my shame, I viewed as below me. And God grew me in that wilderness. God grew me in that time to trust that he is more faithful, that he is better than this position. So I told you I was going to tell you something that, that I haven't told you yet. So, so toward the end of the school year, that last school year that I was there, um, all the teachers you know, in, my, in my group, in my, in my uh, you know, block or whatever, whatever we called them, We'd, we'd get together and we'd talk, and so we're all hanging out in the hallway after the kids had gone home from school. We're chatting and we're laughing and we're joking, and, and again, to my shame, a lot of the things that came out of my mouth were not God-honoring things. And, and I can remember distinctly that the, the, the English teacher, talking to the group, not just to me, but to the group, said, man, I am so glad that they sent us Kevin and not some Christian. Could you imagine if they had sent us some Christian? What a bummer that would have been. And you know what I said? Nothing. I didn't say anything. For the rest of the year, I didn't say anything. And I just had Matthew 10.33 running through my mind. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And I was a coward. And I was a slave to my own comfort. And I was a slave to my own self-doubt and anxiety. What if, what if I tell them I'm a Christian and they start asking me questions that I don't know the answers to? What if I tell them I'm a Christian and they think that I'm some sort of bigot? What if I tell them I'm a Christian and they, and they judge me? I was a slave to my sin. And I praise God now that he didn't let me have that job because it was in this other job where I was able to embrace him, where I was able to press into him, where I was able to grow more into who he has created me to be to the point where when we'd hire another guy on within an hour, I'm saying, hey, have you ever heard the gospel? I'm going to be that guy because I don't care or I do care. That's the thing, is that I do actually care, but I care about the right thing this time. I have my priorities straight. God first, other people, and there is a world of people who have never heard the gospel because 
You want to know what the, the, the number one reaction was when I say, hey, have you ever heard the gospel before? No. Well, are you interested and in, can maybe I talk to you about it? And yeah, why not? And then you just go into the gospel. Just tell them that, that Jesus Christ came. We're all sinners. Jesus Christ gives this free gift. And, and you know what happens at the end of that? Usually, they don't get on their knees and, and beg for repentance right there. And by usually, I mean I've never seen that. But they do say, that's really interesting. I'd like to further talk about this. And there's freedom. And I'm working the way that God designed me to work, to, to love Him and love other people. And He did it by placing me in the wilderness. And that's what true freedom is. True freedom is when God takes us out of what we, are, what we want, our comfort, our, our ease. We all want to live these easy, comfortable lives. Me too. But the wilderness is where God puts us into those difficult circumstances in order that he may chip away at us and destroy the things in us that need to be destroyed. Like Paul, he needs to break us. He needs to tear us apart so that he can rebuild us, bottom up. And it's the wilderness where God teaches us to love him, where he teaches us to press into him. It's the wilderness where God finally is able to grab us by our shirts and say, are you listening now? Do I have your attention now? And because he loves us, he is going to do this for us. And I pray that I can look back 10 years, or from 10 years from from now, and I can say, yes, God, thank you for those wildernesses, because that's where I learned who you truly are and how desperately I truly need you. And that's where you set me free. See, the wilderness is where our heart starts to beat more in sync with the heart of God. And that what we want to do becomes what he wants us to do. See, see, when we become Christians, we have this struggle. We have, so before I was a Christian, I was, I was doing things and, and I was watching things. And there, there were things, and I never really had this other thing that came later. So after I placed faith in Christ, we'll just go with movies that I used to watch because that's an easy one. So there were movies that I would watch, and, and they were not even close to God-honoring. They were, they were blasphemous. They were, they were you know, just really terrible stuff. And so once I was, once I was saved, um, I'd have this inner turmoil. Like, God, I know I'm not supposed to watch that anymore, but I still want to watch it. Because anybody, is, anybody, is anybody watching me? Is anybody here? Can I get away with this? You're here. You won't tell anybody, will you? Like, and so I'd turn it on and I'd watch it for a little while and, until I felt that turmoil get too strong or, or whatever. And... and so, but what, because what comes when the Holy Spirit indwells you, you have this desire, your sin, you still want it, you still love it, but the Holy Spirit comes behind that and says, yes, you love that, but you don't want to love that anymore. And it's like, that didn't happen before I was a Christian. So, so we still have this, I want these things over here. Yes, God, you're great, but I still want these things. And the Holy Spirit comes behind that and says, yeah, but you don't want to want that anymore. Does that make sense? Am I the only one? I'm not the only one. No. Okay. Praise the Lord. Yeah, so you have, these, you have these desires for what's wrong. And the Holy Spirit comes and he realigns your desires to God's desires. And that comes through work. And that comes through the Holy Spirit working in you. And it comes through time. And it comes through placing you in circumstances where you have to love him and know him more. Right? And so, so the goal of life is to live freely. 
to have our, our desires lined up with His desires, to have what we want to do be what God wants us to do. That's true freedom. So we don't have to look down at our what would Jesus do bracelet. It's just what we want to do. We don't have to take that second step and think, okay, what, what would a Christian do in this circumstance? It's we already know because we've pressed into his word, we've pressed into him because he's placed us in tough circumstances in which we need him. St. Augustine has this beautiful quote that sums up life. It's love God and do whatever you want. And, and that can be you know, misconstrued, but, but the, the point is that if our loves are lined up properly, that if we are functioning the way that God has aligned us to function, the way that he has designed us in the first place, then we can love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love other people as ourselves and do whatever we want because what we want to do is what he wants for us to do. You see how that's freedom? You see how sin is slavery, that it's killing us, that we're functioning in a way that we were not designed to function all the while waving the banner of autonomy, waving the banner of I'm free to do whatever I want. Yeah, well, a fish is free to jump out of the water onto land, but that's going to kill it. Right? So, so love God and do whatever you want, and God's going to put you in the wilderness. He's going to put you in the workshop because he loves you. So how did Paul, this, this, this Pharisee of Pharisees, persecuting the church, how did he go from, from that to the greatest church planter in the history of the world? I mean, the Holy Spirit, obviously, God gets all the glory for everything good that ever happens to us, and we can take all the blame ourselves. Okay, that, and that's not unfair. Because it's him working in us to desire the, the good things anyway. So, so how does Paul go from, from persecuting the church to planting churches and encouraging the church and writing half of our New Testament. I'd like to read real quick out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. He talks about all of the stuff that he had to go through in order to fulfill the mission that God had given him. He says, He has far more imprisonments than others with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A, day, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And then we'll jump into chapter 12 because he continues on. And at the end, he sums it all up with this statement. Chapter 12, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul goes from this, this persecutor of the church to this maybe the most sanctified human being that has ever walked. Of course, other than Jesus Christ. But, but he, he, he goes 
through this process because of all of this, because God loves him enough and has given him this grace to endure and to know that God is better and God is more important and God is more lovely and God is better than the, anything that the world can offer. And he can endure. And, and, and one of his favorite words that is through, all throughout his letters, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in all circumstances. Rejoice because you are adopted as sons and daughters of the king of the universe. You have inherited all things. Rejoice in your persecutions. We have a hope that the world cannot understand unless we proclaim the gospel to them. To live as Christ, he writes in Philippians. To live as Christ in death is gain. He doesn't know whether or not to live or die. He doesn't know, like, he's convinced that he's, he's to remain here because he has more work to do, but, but death would be preferable because that's when he's with Jesus, face to face, as we sang. So think about, like, when you're truly, fun- so, so for me, it's, it's this moment up here where, where we're all singing together these truths about who God is in which I, my soul feels free. My soul feels like it's doing what it's made to do, to, 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 to love God. That's as close as I get to loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. In those moments, my desire for sin is like almost not there. And that's the freedom in Christ. And the goal is to become more and more and more like that throughout your life. That's sanctification. That's freedom. So, so I'll wrap it up with this. Brothers and sisters, the wilderness is not necessarily judgment from God. He has not put you there if you've trusted in Christ. He's not put you there to spank you. He's not put you there, well, maybe he has put you there to spank you. He may be disciplining you. And that's because he loves you. But he has not put you there because he has left you. He has not put you there because he's abandoned you. We think of Psalm 23, which we read this morning, that we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that death is so close to us that it is literally casting a shadow on us. But I will fear no evil because I know who the shepherd is. I know who's in front with that rod and that staff. They comfort me. He comforts me. So yes, I'm going to walk through the wilderness, but I am in good company. I know who my master is. I know who my shepherd is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is sovereign over all things, and he is in control of even when you're in the wilderness, and it's where he's pressing you to press into him. So God has not abandoned you if you've trusted in Christ. He's not punishing you if you've trusted in Christ. He's lovingly drawing you into more fullness of life. And if we can get this perspective, we'll be set free. You're in good company in the wilderness. And let me say this last thing. If you are in the wilderness, or when you are in the wilderness, it is a gift from a loving Father. And you do not have to walk alone. Because one of his other gifts is the church. And he has given us the church to come alongside us and to help and to walk through the difficult times and to rejoice with you while you rejoice and to to mourn with you while you mourn and to strengthen and encourage you. There is no shame anymore because of what Christ has done for us. We can be free. Jesus Christ has called us all out on the cross. He has called us all out completely. There is no more shame 
We all know, I know, I don't know exactly what, but I know that you're all sinners. And you know that I'm a sinner. There is no shame. We, he has taken our shame from us so that we can say, yes, I'm a mess. I need help. Please help me. And let us come alongside of you because you're imprisoning yourself to that self-doubt, to that shame, to that guilt. You're, you're enslaving yourself to that. And God has called us to freedom. So please, don't walk through it alone. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by you this morning. And God, I pray that you would allow us to know you more fully. That you would be our greatest treasure that you would kill any idols that we put in front of you, God, so that we may have fullness of life. And God, that when we find ourselves in the wilderness, we would be open to talk about it and be set free from it and know that we will be able to look back in the future and see how you have brought us so faithfully through that. God, I praise you for your steadfast love towards us, towards me. And praise you for your patience, endurance. And we love you because you have first loved us. And God, please continue to grow us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, who is the reason that we are able to come before you as we do right now. Amen.